Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. This week, we are talking about the Governor Abbott vaccine not mandate. Uh, We will talk about the Biden DOJ memo aimed at school boards and public officials, the January 6th select committee's continuing investigation, and end with uh, President Biden's numbers dropping among independents. David, as you put in our uh, our text messages, all the Texas things. <laughs> well, how about one big Texas thing? Because there's a lot of Texas things going all going on all the time. Your home state, Sarah, is always interesting. So uh, I want to read two tweets here, and then I want to go right ping pong right back to you because this is your state. So why we we have to start with you? All right, this is tweet number one from Governor Greg Abbott, dated October 10th, 2021, 4.32 p.m. for those keeping precise score at home. California mandates gender-neutral toy aisles for large retailers. Not in Texas. In Texas, it's businesses, not government, that decide how they display their merchandise. Okay, that's one. Next one. The next day, October 11th, 2021, 6 p.m., I issued an executive order prohibiting vaccine mandates by any entity in Texas. I also added the issue to the special session agenda. The COVID-19 is safe, vaccine is safe, effective, and our best defense against the virus, but should always remain voluntary and never forced. So in Texas, Sarah, businesses have the freedom to display their merchandise they do not have the freedom to keep their employees safe from COVID. Huh. What the heck? Well, David, it was 26 hours later. Uh, obviously, <laughs> it's a different political environment. Um, <laughs> True. This is, there's there's a few ways to look at this. I'm going to take the political angle because I feel like, uh, you know, Steve's going to be all substance and Jonah's going to be big picture. So I'm just going to stick in my nice little lane This is a 2024 move against Ron DeSantis. They are still living in a world in which Donald Trump may not run for the Republican nomination, and it will be Abbott versus DeSantis in that Trump executive serious lane. And Ron DeSantis, frankly, time and time again, has outmaneuvered Abbott um, on not just culture war stuff, because I don't think this quite fits into the culture war paradigm exactly, but on... um, top shelf media narrative. And here's an example where Abbott finally outmaneuvers DeSantis, I think, in his view. Like, think about the tech bill. Florida got out first with an anti-big tech bill. Abbott followed uh, just last month. Um, uh, And so many other examples uh, when it comes to schools, sports, Yada, yada. So uh, interesting political move by Abbott. You know, he has a race, a reelection race next year in 2022. I think it also tells you how 
unconcerned he is about that race. There's no pivoting to the middle going on here. Look at the special session. Uh, look at the Texas abortion law. I mean, none of that is a pivot to the middle by any means. Voting, abortion, big tech, vaccine, anti-mandate. Um, so I think it tells you about the politics right now that Abbott's team certainly doesn't think Texas is trending blue, let alone turning blue. And they see, in fact, Governor DeSantis of Florida as their main competition nationally. So um, can I follow up super fast with a question politically? Okay, so my question is, it seems to me, though, that he's still thinking about the base of the base of the base because Texas isn't really all that below the national average in vaccinations. This isn't a this isn't what you would call an anti-vax state in the same way that Mississippi is. It's not even as low as Tennessee. This doesn't seem like something that is playing for even a broad GOP um, base of support. This seems is it couldn't this also be primary focused against Alan West? He has no serious concern about Alan West. And David, part of what you just said it fits, I think, very well into my narrative, which is, yeah, because this isn't really about Texas. Think nationally in these individual states who's voting in primaries, um, and it's it's the base of the base of the base. And especially in those early primary states, the Iowa caucus, I mean, it's a caucus. It's not even a primary. You got to be really basey to want to go out in very cold weather and stand in a junior high gymnasium for several hours to caucus. Uh, And how do you get your message out to a national base that doesn't live in your state? You've got to already get into that media bloodstream of what's being talked about. Abbott did a masterful job of that with this announcement. He is in the media, the national media bloodstream, where the base of the base will hear it. His message in 2024 is going to be something to the effect of, we did it in Texas, regardless of whether it needed to be done in Texas. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I I don't think he's thinking about Alan West at all. He has no real primary threat coming from Alan West. All right. Um, well, let's do the the framework that Sarah just suggested. She did political stuff. Steve, substance stuff. <laughs> substance stuff. I, I think he, he has a problem. I mean, for exactly the way that you framed this discussion, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to claim. I mean, Texas has spent years marketing itself as a place for businesses to come and to do business unencumbered by the state and t- touting uh, the state's eagerness to allow businesses to operate as they see fit, to, to work in a lower tax environment, um, to uh, not have the kinds of regulations that are present in other states. And yet he is saying, in effect, you can't run your business the way you want to run your business. I think there's, there's a charge of hypocrisy. I think in this political environment, um, where you have so much of the base that you and Sarah were talking about spun up about these issues. It's, it's, you know, it's this, this oppositional, um, inclination on both the right and the left. It, it is easy to see him making that as a political argument without really much concern about philosophical consistency. Um, the latest in, in, a, a number of these kinds of, arguments that we've seen from Republican elected officials. They care more about making the political argument and putting themselves in a better political position than they do about 
you know, any charges that that we or others or their their uh, political opponents might make that they're being inconsistent. Jonah, big picture stuff. <laughs> um, so I had a friend that we all know here, but he wasn't on the record. So I'll just quote a prominent journalist friend that we all know uh, <laughs> sent me that um, that Abbott tweet and said, I have a theory. It says, everything they used to say about the base wasn't true when they were saying it, but it's true now. <laughs> um, and that the base is sort of, it's become self-fulfilling prophecy that they've sort of become uh, the unfair uh, caricature that uh, that was once leveled at them. And I, I appreciate your Abbott tweet, but I want to do you one better. Oh, uh, this is from the, uh, you know, uh, possibly Donald Trump's running mate in 2024, Charlie Kirk. Um, he <laughs> oh, I know what this one is. Reject tyranny. Catch the freedom flu. And he wrote freedom flu as a hashtag. Um, so now, not getting the vaccine, refusing to get the vaccine... That's for cucks. That is for you <laughs> rhino squish guys. Now you actually affirmatively must get infected with the freedom flu to truly prove your manhood. And um, I think, I mean, I think Sarah's political analysis is, is entirely right about this, is that, that, that these guys don't, they don't care about arguments to persuade even moderate, Republicans. It's all about getting the intense crawl over glass voters that dominate the base. And these voters are so dominant that it caused me to recently write about how maybe conservatives should form a third party to punish the GOP for, you know, descending into um, grotesque asininity. And um, so I don't have a great big picture here beyond to say that um, the stupid, it, it burns. Um, (laughs) it, it, it burns very hot and, and it's, it is amazing to me how a base that a decade ago was demanding conservative purity is now cares not a whit about conservative purity and cares entirely about performative buffoonery. Um, and the thing that disappoints me about Abbott is that, you know, Rick Perry, you have to give him a bit of a discount because he kind of grew up as a sort of yeehaw kind of guy, but his yeehaw was kind of authentic, right? It was part of his actual personality. Abbott's faking it. There's no way he believes half the things he's doing are actually like smart or sound or principled. It's just craven pandering and boob bait. And um, that's why we can't have nice things. Next up, I want to talk about the Department of Justice memo related to FBI investigations against threats of public officials. So this starts, in some ways at least, with the National School Boards Association asking the Biden administration to do something. And let me read the sentence that I think has everyone's, you know, hackles. Uh, As these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. 
The Garland Justice Department responds with a memo uh, that basically says, yes, we will launch a series of additional efforts in the coming days designed to address the rise in criminal conduct directed toward school personnel. Here's the quote from Garland. Threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values. Those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our children receive a proper education and a safe environment deserve to be able to do their work without fear for their safety. David, you have written about this, and you and I have even had a slight disagreement about it as well, Uh, but it is undoubtedly the conversation happening with parents right now, particularly on the right side of the political spectrum across the country of, um, is this now criminalizing parents complaining or holding their school boards accountable? Um, Is this a massive overreaction? Is this intimidation? Is this threats by the Biden Justice Department to back off the CRT conversations? Uh, And I think it ranges the spectrum of parents who are genuinely concerned and and wondering what this memo means for them to not less genuine. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that this is intimidating parents into silence is is <laughs> disabused by the fact that nobody's being intimidated into silence here. I, this is a classic, Sarah, the more I've looked at this, this is one of these classic to America information tunnel moments. Because If you are on the right side of the spectrum, you have been told by virtually everyone, and I'm going to read a uh, a tweet by Christopher Rufo, breaking Attorney General Merrick Garland has instructed the FBI to mobilize against parents who oppose critical race theory in public schools, citing, quote, threats. So um, this letter follows the National School School Board Association's request to classify protests as, quote, domestic terrorism. Now, that's not that's not what the letter does. And that's not what the NSBA request said. But that's the narrative that has come in on the right, that we have robust disagreement in in public school boards. Uh, Yeah, people are mad. Yeah, people are rowdy. But that's First Amendment activity and action. And here comes the DOJ to intimidate. And if you actually look at the NSBA letter, it's really not a good letter. It's when no, I, that sentence when I, re- I read, I find silly. Yeah, it's not a good, and, and, and here's why it's not a good letter. It's not just the sentence that you wrote. They didn't read, do I didn't the, write it. I mean, sorry, said. <laughs> we're making news here. <laughs> Whoops. Sarah, why were you doing that? Sorry. It's not just the sentence you, you read. It is that, um, they didn't do their homework. I mean, and why do I say that? Because there's a whole other side of the spectrum that has highlighted and surfaced all kinds of really disturbing threats directed at school board officials and people who testify um, in ways that the base of the base of the base, the really angry base um, of the GOP doesn't like. And in fact, some of this stuff has happened in my own home county where we have had school board officials threatened. We have had people who testified in favor of masks in school very aggressively approached right outside the um, school board meeting. We know who you are. We will find you. We will. You will never be allowed in public again. Um, we know where you live in other places. We know where you, where you live. We're going to stalk you. We're coming to your house. Uh, we've had people come to houses armed. We've had 
I mean, so there are actual things that are going on that are way beyond we're just rowdy at a school board meeting. And so I think the, if, if you drill down to the substance of the letter, if you drill down to the substance of the letter, this really goes to the public trust question. Because the substance of the letter says, one, you affirm the right to engage in spirited debate. Correct. Two, threats against public servants are illegal and should be prosecuted, quote, when appropriate, correct. And three, they, almost, they also promise to convene meetings with local law enforcement to discuss strategies for addressing threats, window dressing. So the letter is kind of a placeholder. It's a, yeah, you can protest. No, you can't threaten. And we're going to hold some meetings. Um, but when you're in the information tunnel, there's two things going on at once. How dare you even mention prosecution against these wonderful, though rowdy, patriotic Americans? And then the other one is, doesn't that seem a little anodyne when people are having armed protesters coming to their house, when there are direct threats to stalk, when people are getting in the e in mail death threats? Is, isn't that a little light? So I think this is a real two Americas moment. And one of the things that we have to understand is that, yeah, rowdy protests at school board meetings, so long as they're, you know, they're not violating applicable law, that's First Amendment protected expression. Absolutely. Nobody should be suppressed from yelling at their school board members. Number two, however, a lot of this has crossed a line in much the same way we've seen it cross a line with secretaries of state during the election challenge with congressmen and senators during the impeachment vote. And look, people on the right need to wake up and realize that is going on. But instead, they just act like it's not. So Jonah, a letter from the attorney general cannot change the law. Not what it does. This was a messaging memo from the Biden administration and from Attorney General Garland uh, sort of taking sides on this debate. And this is where David and I kind of disagree. I think it was meant to take sides. I think it was meant to be a political statement. It wasn't uh, adenine anodyne? Anodyne. Anodyne. <laughs> Adenoid anodyne. Adenoid anodyne. <laughs> I've been listening to an etymology podcast recently, and now all my words. It's British, so I can't even understand half of what they're saying. Um, uh, it did. It was meant to have a political purpose. And I just think it was bad politics because I think it had far more of an effect on the right than it did on the left. And let me just read you what Senator Hawley, speaking of 2024 ambitions, said. Uh, Joe Biden has directed the FBI to investigate parents like this, referring to a dad who is making the rounds on Fox News related to a Daily Wire story about his daughter being sexually assaulted at school. Um, this is who Biden and the left want to silence, not criminals, parents. If this Garland memo isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings, I don't know what is. So my question to you, Jonah, is did the Biden folks not think through this? Like, why hand the right such an easy talking point that doesn't really do anything to help, quote unquote, their team? Um. It's, that's actually a good segue for my topic, but which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but the short answer to that is because I don't think the Biden team is very good at what they do. <laughs> and um, I think that, yeah, I'm more on your side than I am on David's on this one. I think it was, 
it was political and bad politics. Um, and that doesn't mean that the right wing narrative that these are all just Norman Rockwell painting peaceful protesters is right either. Um, but you know, this is a point that Charlie Cook, you know, often makes uh, British Charlie Cook, not pollster Charlie Cook. Um, that a lot of Americans think the FBI is like the super police, right? That if the, if, you know, that if something's a real crime, you call in the FBI because they're the real cops. You know, they're the ones who, they're the ninjas of the law enforcement world. And that's not their role. And almost everything that has been alleged about the real abuses, and I think David Thompson is right, there have been real abuses. Those are jobs for local law enforcement. You know, they're, if they're happening in Virginia, it's a Democratic governor. This, I think that the, the part of the problem is that the Democratic Party nationally um, and in almost every other regard is so beholden to the teachers unions and the education establishment that they have almost a Pavlovian response to pandering to them. And so I think that like, like if the National Association of Retailers had sent a letter to the Biden administration. And there have been enormous and well-documented cases of retail cashiers being horribly treated by customers and all that kind of stuff because the pandemic is making people crazy. The Biden administration would not say, or the Garland DOJ would not leap to and say, um, we're going to look into this. And um, so as the feeling of special treatment and special pleading for the teachers at a moment when teachers are so unbelievably, I, I shouldn't say teachers, teachers unions and education bureaucrats are so unbelievably unpopular with people because of school shutdowns, masking requirements, and now this CRT stuff. And so I just think it was bad politics followed by a kind of double sta standard bad policy, even though for sure, I, I agree that the letter itself from Garland was kind of anodyne and that, that, he stood up for free speech in the letter, but the signal that people took was the, the, the justice department is calling me a domestic terrorist. And that was so foreseeable. I think the protests increase rather than decrease because of this. So even if it wasn't political, it was bad politics. Well, can I, let, let me ask a question. I've, I've already acknowledged that I have not uh, studied up on this as much as you guys have. So rather than weigh in, let me ask another question. Is it let's let's stipulate that it's bad politics. Let's let's I won't dispute that from from your perspective. Could this be what he intended to do? I mean, could this be, as you say, in service to the teachers unions? Um, could it be that he wanted to send this signal that they think these parents are are real threats and that they that they might, in fact, have to. Uh, be extra tough, and that this this message that he's sending wasn't an accident, wasn't a stumble, but was precisely what he wanted it. Which is to say, it's not that you know right wing critics went in and grabbed this language and made it a big thing, um, so much as it was the actual intent of the letter. Surely, the Biden administration three weeks before the Virginia governor's race that is tightening every single day did not want to gin up the enthusiasm for the Republican side, though, right? I mean, that would be some kind of stupid. 
But if if we accept your framing of this current moment in American politics, which is everything's about getting your base out, right? Yeah, except it I don't think this riles up. It would have the accidental effect. <laughs> I don't think this riles up their base nearly as much because there's none of that fear element, right? Now the right has this like, now they're sending the FBI for you if you even think about complaining about your schools. And of course, it doesn't help that Terry McAuliffe then uh, publicly at that debate said, um, I'm tired of parents. I, I don't want to get the quote wrong, but it was I don't loosely. Think teach, I don't think parents should be telling teachers what to teach or something like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that was. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there. To, I agree with you, Stephen. Like, I don't think McAuliffe's um, point was a misstatement exactly. I think he's used to saying that to his crowd and it getting a good reaction. But I just don't think they thought through because I don't think they're part of the ecosystem Right. We're to David's point. It really is two Americas. They are simply not in the ecosystem that they're not in. And I don't think they understood what they were creating. And this has now become the memo has become a huge talking point. I mean, I have a, just a mother's group of school age children. Obviously, mine is not school age. Um, and this is what they're talking about is this memo. And and they're you know, I, I just don't think that could possibly be what the Biden folks intended. And if to Jonah's point, maybe if they did, um, woof, that's, that was not smart in my view. Cause if Yunkin wins in Virginia, the Republican, uh, nominee in Virginia, I think, I think you can trace it not like one-to-one to this memo, but to the atmospherics of things like this memo. Well, and they were already talking about schools. It was already a prominent issue. Absolutely. Uh, and, and this feeds that, that narrative. Yeah. Let me let, let me, as the least professional political uh, pundit here. Um, let me give you my perspective on I a I agree on at least based on all the data we have now, or or at least the what we perceive that the memo did not have its intended effect. But I do think there is something going on on the that it, there is a a sensible view on the Democratic side that goes like this. If we need to highlight how radical the Republican base has become, they are, if you're voting for Republicans, you're voting for people who are anti-vax, you're voting for people who want to ban books, and you're voting for people who threaten school board members' lives, okay? What, that was a lousy way of sending that message, because as has been obvious, is that it was immediately turned into the Biden school board, I mean, the Biden DOJ is trying to criminalize dissent. The Biden DOJ is trying to chill dissent. Um, but there is a point at which, and I don't know when this point will occur, there is a point at which this relentless, uh, f- the, the relentless atmosphere of threats that is coming from part of the right is going to go beyond, it's going to go beyond threats and somebody's going to get hurt. I, it just feels inevitable sure. at this point. Sure. And so one, I think one of the issues here is that- Well, you've had, I mean, if oh, I can just jump in, sorry, David, real quick. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've had uh, incidents of, of, of people, I think there was one last week where somebody uh, went out and I think shot his brother because his brother was uh, pro-vaccine um, and this person, the shooter was anti-vaccine. You started to see these things pop up. Yeah. I do think there was a, an, if there's a political objective to this that was fumbled, this was, 
you know, this was what they're trying, the past they were trying to complete is there is a real atmosphere of threat against public officials who defy the GOP base. And that is a real thing. That's a real thing. And that letter, in part because the NSBA letter asking for it didn't do its homework, uh, that letter was a ham-handed att- attempt to highlight a real thing. Yeah, here, just so I'm, I'm not making this up, there's a Maryland man who allegedly killed his brother who was a pharmacist, not a doctor, saying that his brother, by being a pharmacist and administering vaccines, was, quote, killing people, unquote. So I think you're, you're starting to see this happen. And I'll just say there are probably other issues at work between those two brothers than <laughs> that top line summary. Um, just because like. Hopefully. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I, I guess I don't make that assumption. People are so fired up about this vaccine stuff. Um, no, I agree. But like, like, even if you're crazy anti-vax, like there, there are pharmacists out there who aren't your brother. That he could have shot. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. It's just like, it's, you know, it's like the old bear hunting joke. This is really isn't about the hunting at some point when you're talking about people killing family members, but we don't need to get too in the weeds on that. All right. Before we leave the topic, I want to pull back the curtain a little on our discussion uh, before we headed into this topic, which was that Daily Wire story that I mentioned about a student who was allegedly sexually assaulted in the bathroom in a Loudoun County school. That is also getting a lot of attention with, at least right now, the online crowd, Fox News primetime crowd. Um, And we decided not to discuss it because uh, we don't have all the facts. We'd like more reporting on it before we discuss a story like that. But for me in particular, and it's something I try to emphasize to my uh, friends and family, when something fits so easily into a pre-existing narrative of the day, uh, you really have to question like the, that coincidence. And, you know, we've had defamation lawsuits against Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, where their defenses have been. The information that we present on our show is obviously opinion. We don't necessarily prevent, uh, present facts on our show. And I just like to reiterate that. So uh, perhaps this is the topic we will revisit in the future. But I just thought that uh, I wanted to share that with our listeners. <laughs> And we'll pop we'll pop the the link in to the show notes. It's a subscription subscriber only uh, piece at the Daily Wire right now. But if people are interested, we'll make it easy for you to get. Oh, so if you go to Google News and type in Daily Wire <laughs> and a couple of these phrases, it'll come up. Summaries of it will come up somewhere. But all right, let's go to our next topic. Just another super calm, nothing to see here. Uh, January sixth. Yeah, I would say January sixth. Plus, um, I, I wanted to revisit uh, a French press that David uh, wrote last week, looking sort of at what we've learned about the attacks and the extent to which there was an actual plan. And just to refresh people's memories, on the day, on January 6th, um, you know, we, we, we all watched as uh, the, the riot, the attacks on the Capitol took place. Then things calmed down a little bit. Uh, the, the Senate reconvened um, and, um, and did its duty. And in the middle of all of that, we posted a, a short story um, about Rudy Giuliani making phone calls at the president's behest. Um, 
trying to get senators to slow down the process, trying to get senators not to do what what they eventually did on that night. So after the violence, one of the president's top advisors was still making these calls, trying to slow things down. And the question was, was Giuliani freelancing? Was this part of a bigger pattern? And, and was this actually a plan? Did he just want to slow it down with the hope that slowing it down would keep, keep the inevitable from happening? Or did he want to slow it down because they had intended to do things with the delay? And uh, from all of the reporting that we've seen over the past, in particular over the past several weeks, it's become abundantly clear there was in fact a plan. And this was a plan that was devised at the highest level by the president with the president's involvement. David, you wrote about that last week. Can you just bring us up to speed on what we've learned and why you think it matters? Yeah. So um, there's been a kind of a narrative that's emerged after January 6th, again, in the right wing media tunnel, that this was a this was a spontaneous uh, demonstration or the demonstration was planned, but the walk to the Capitol and the attack on the Capitol was just spontaneous. Things got out of hand. It's a one-off. Don't need to really think about it too much. But the reality is here, what we have is January 6th representing a culmination of a series of efforts that would have provided vice, that purported to provide Vice President Pence with the legal pretext for invalidating the election. And so this kind of uh, connects with an advisory opinions podcast that uh, Sarah and I did uh, a week or so ago called the Eastman Memo is Real and It's Not Spectacular. <laughs> but here, here is what, here's what essentially happened. And we don't need to go through all of the history here is that there's kind of two parallel efforts going on at once that are behind the scenes pr- prior to January 6th. The one is um, the White House. So a, the tr- a Trump aide reaches out to John Eastman, who is the founder of Claremont Institute Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, a former law school dean, law professor, member, uh, head of a Federalist Society practice group, so respected uh, conservative scholar, and asks to uh, him to write a memo about the January 6th certification that would provide them with options. And so Uh, Eastman writes a two-page outline and then a longer memo, and this the two-page outline provides a basis for which Eastman says, essentially, Pence can uh, make Donald Trump president on January sixth. So then Eastman comes to the Oval Office on January fourth with Trump and Pence. Um, Now Eastman says he did not actually urge Pence to rule Trump president. He said. That people that what he what he wanted done was that Pence, for Pence to delay the certification so that other state legislatures could quote look into the matter and apparently perhaps certify an, a, an alternative slate of electors, but he did in black and white provide Pence with a memo that purported to give him a constitutional basis to nullify the election results and declare. Trump the winner. At the same time, there is a drama playing out in the DOJ. There's a DOJ attorney named Jeffrey Clark, who's essentially threatening acting attorney general, and this is Jeffrey Rosen's job, if he didn't use his power to press key state legislature, legislatures to appoint an alternate slate of electors. So um, 
So it's an, and I'm going to read from a Senate my majority staff report on this incident. It says Clark eventually informed Rosen that Trump had offered to install him in Rosen's place and told, in other words, fire Rosen and put make Jeffrey Clark acting attorney general yeah, um, and told Rosen he would turn down Trump's offer if Rosen would agree to sign the quote proof of concept letter. This was a letter to Georgia urging them to overturn the election result. Clark's efforts culminated in an Oval Office meeting where Rosen and some other uh, DOJ officials informed Trump that DOJ senior leaders would resign if Trump carried out his plans. So essentially what you had is not, you had a mob in place, a POTUS-backed legal memo providing the pretext for the mob, a mob providing a muscle and we were literally Mike Pence just simply saying yes to the legal a, a legal memo crafted by a law school dean to trigger an unbelievable constitutional crisis. And so I think it's very important for people to understand January 6th was the culmination of a comprehensive effort to overturn this election directed by the White House that included placing in Intense pressure on the vice president of the United States and senior DOGA officials, including the acting attorney general. And we were literally basically any one of them from saying yes away from a profound crisis. So, Jonah, what David has just related to us is nowhere to be seen if you're, I mean, this is a theme of this podcast. If if you are in the right wing information tunnel, you, you probably are unaware of all of these things, or to the extent that you're aware of them. And this is where I want to go next. You're untroubled by this. What we're watching now in the aftermath of what David has walked us through, and I'm confident that we will be getting lots more information on what happened on January 6th specifically, but importantly, what the president and his advisors did before January 6th. We're filling in this, this big picture, and while I think we're not likely to see cooperation from some of the president's top advisors, I do think that the January 6th commission is getting... Uh, help from and information from lower level staffers uh, who were in a position to to understand what was what was taking place. But we're looking now at efforts across the country. I think some sort of local and organic, others organized by Steve Bannon and others, kind of in in Donald Trump's orbit, to make changes to election processes and election officials, um, sometimes by resorting to the kinds of pressure taxes that we talked about in our last discussion. H how significant is this? I mean, we haven't talked about this for, for a few weeks. And on the one hand, you know, I don't love to go back and, and rehash September or January 6th and dwell on, on Donald Trump. On the other hand, when you have new evidence that comes to light like this, it feels pretty darn significant to me. Am I being alarmist about this? No, not at all. I mean, like uh, we we talked about this uh, when Sarah was missing because we talk about all the cool stuff when Sarah's not around. Um, you know, when we talk about the Kagan op-ed uh, and 
uh, Robert Kagan, prominent neoconservative foreign policy guy, wrote you know this thing about how the coup is happening is is ongoing right now, or the attempted coup is ongoing right now. Very similar to what Kevin Williamson wrote in the New York Times about is is uh, I think it was that that was the title of it. The, the coup is still happening, or something like that. And I think it's right. I mean, we knew. It's funny. So I just did a podcast with Brian Riedel about the debt stuff. And one of the problems with talking about debt and deficit is it's the same friggin' conversation every time you have it. It's just the numbers are a little bigger. And, um, and it's difficult to say something new about something that has been such a slow-moving, obvious problem for so long. It feels a little like that with the, with the January 6th stuff in that Everyone has already priced in their opinions on this, and now they are in a groove where new facts come in, and if you're already of the opinion that people are making too big a deal about all of this stuff, they just bounce off of you, you know? And if you are of the opinion that, um, you know, Trump is guilty of what he's been accused of, and, you know, I think I wrote a piece on November 11th or something like that. This was always the plan. You always wanted to steal the election. We knew that by their reaction to the Fox call about Arizona. Um, and there has been, you know, nothing has moved me off of that since is he, he wanted to steal an election after January 6th, he should have been impeached on January 7th and removed from office and, and barred from public life by January 10th. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, the problem is, is we're just, it's, it's like, we're, you know, adding more cars to a traffic jam. doesn't make anything move faster. Adding more information to this doesn't make it any more obvious. Um, to those people who have eyes to see it. The ongoing stuff is deeply, deeply concerning. And I have a real problem with a lot of my friends on the right who don't want, who'd rather make a big deal about a lot of stuff the Democrats are doing that is bad and, you know, and talk about infrastructure and all these things, which is bad. And I agree. I've written a lot about infrastructure, but like this is happening in their own house, right? This is happening in their name to a certain extent. And, and if you, agree broadly speaking that what they're trying to do is not just wrong but kind of evil or not even kind of just plain plainly evil um you have more of an obligation not less of one to talk about it and say something about that where i get off the bus a little bit is with the certainty that everybody has like like a lot of these people i mean let's be clear a lot of these people are clowns and buffoons you know steve bannon um is not the strategic genius he thinks he is. And just because he wears many layers of shirts doesn't change that fact. And so the fact that these guys are trying to do all of this stuff doesn't mean that they will succeed. And it doesn't mean, and it certainly is not so certain that they will succeed that I think conservatives and Republicans should drop all other concerns about spending, debt, deficits, critical race theory, all of these things and join some weird pro-democracy coalition um, that basically gives gives Democrats permission structure to do whatever they want without making any compromises. Like, it's just, it's not how politics is going to work. You're not going to get a lot of people to join it. Um, and you're going to discredit a lot of conservatives and Republicans who the right needs to have some credibility on the right to call BS on the stuff that's going on. So it's just a complicated thing. It's not a straight line projection into the future. And um, it requires, but it does require a lot more sunlight and condemnation on the right, for sure. Yeah. I, so I, I agree with you entirely on that. I mean, I, th I think it's, 
it's crucial to, to continue to scrutinize what the Biden administration is doing. And I think particularly as things continue to fall apart um, and, and he governs to, to please the, the left side of the Democratic Party. It, it is, I don't see it as any kind of a solution to sort of throw in with Joe Biden. And uh, very interesting conversation. Um, my old boss, Bill Crystal, does these conversations with Bill Crystal. Um, he had one with uh, University of Chicago professor William Bode, who as a, has been a, a guest on Advisory Opinions, where they talked about what we've learned and what the implications are. Absolutely fascinating. And Bode, at the end of the podcast, we will put this in the show notes as well, makes the point that we're taking sort of false comfort in the idea that, that right now there really seems to be only one political party doing this. But as we continue this uh, ends justify the means politics that that we're going down, we should take no such assurance that Democrats won't do the same kinds of things in the future, which I think raises this to a new level of concern. But on on Jonah's point, Sarah, the what strikes me is, I guess, is the is the contrast at precisely the same time that we're learning these things that David lays out, making it incontrovertibly true that this was a plan that however buffoonish we might think it was, they attempted to execute a plan to steal the election. This is not like a gray area anymore. That's what they were trying to do. We know this today with far more detail and with far more certainty than we did on January 7th. And I agree that Trump should have been impeached then. And yet this past weekend, Senator Chuck Grassley, running for re-election at the age of 88 in Iowa, appeared on stage with Donald Trump at a rally in Iowa. You see Donald Trump's approval rating, I think in the latest CNN poll among Iowa Republicans, at something like 91%. You see Lindsey Graham, who made that, that speech uh, in the Senate well, aggrieved by the fact that he had contributed to what happened on January 6th, now saying this past weekend, I am pushing a draft Trump movement. What gives? Why are Republicans doing this? So, first of all, the politics, right? You, you already cited the reason they're doing it. Um, the base turned out not to care. It's why they cared at the beginning and then they didn't. It's just a replay of 20 15, 2016, all over again. Uh, these guys think that they understand their base, so they try to get out ahead of them, and then it turns out the base isn't behind them. And so it's like a new version of the French Revolution. Uh, there go my people. Instead, it's like, here we are going. No one's behind me. We're going the other way. Um, however, I do think there is one thing outstanding that could at least still change this direction. Um, I think I have maybe more profound concerns about 2024 than the three of you, which is hard, by the way. It's not to say y'all don't have concerns. I just, I feel mine so deeply. I would find it hard to believe that anyone's feeling them more deeply than me as I see um, trying to replace election officials, secretaries of state, uh, potentially flipping some of these governors. You know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin governors will all be up in 2022. I actually don't think a lot of those will flip. But regardless, to make the very long version of my concern shorter, if uh, you send 
in two slates of electors, the one that the governor signs off on is actually the one that is considered official if the two houses can't agree. I'm very much skimming over some of the legal details here. Um, And it's a little like David's China game theory point. If you know that the other side isn't going to accept the results of the election if their guy loses, and by the way, both sides believe that, the Biden supporters believe that the Trump supporters will not accept a Biden victory, but the Trump supporters very much believe, and I think with some good evidence, that the Biden supporters will not accept a Trump victory. If you believe that, then you start moving into preemptive strike mode. And if you believe that both sides benefit from a preemptive strike, then you're better off preemptive striking their preemptive strike. And you move back and back and back and back before the election, way before the election. And that's where my deep concerns come from. So here's the one thing that I think could And we're seeing those preemptive strikes now. I think yes. that's what this is. Yes. Yeah. Um, David and I talked about the legal issues around executive privilege as the January 6th Select Committee sends out these subpoenas. They have subpoenaed for testimonial uh, evidence from Bannon, Mark Meadows, Cash Patel, Dan Scavino, but they've also asked for documents and the whatnots from the National Archives. Here's your fun cocktail party thing that you now get to impress people with. Uh, Donald Trump's records are not at the White House. They're not in the possession of Joe Biden or the White House counsel. They've actually all moved to the National Archives. And so when Donald Trump sues to have uh, them not turned over to Congress, he will actually be suing the National Archivist. And we have some precedent for this. Richard Nixon sued the head of the Government Services Administration. Back in his day, the GSA had these documents. Uh, The thing that the committee is very interested in, as am I, and I think it could change because of the nature of it, are the draft videos of Donald Trump's statement that he put out on January 6th. In the afternoon, late afternoon, if you remember, he finally put out a video that said, I love you, but go home. We have reporting, uh, including from ABC's Jonathan Carl, that the previous drafts do not include anything about going home. We don't know what else he says to his supporters. We know that his staff refused to release those versions of the video. I think that those will come out. I do not think he will be able to assert executive privilege over those. They will go to the committee. It will take some time if there's lawsuits, et cetera. But when they come out and you actually have a video of Donald Trump that day that is everywhere, because it will be played everywhere, even you know Fox News, et cetera, will be playing that video, maybe defending it, but they will be playing it. It's too good a visual. It's too good of audio. It will remind people of that day. And potentially, and again, I haven't seen the draft videos, but it could paint Donald Trump in quite a different light for some of these people. Will that matter? Let's say it happens. I don't know if it'll matter, but I think it's the last thing that can change the trajectory that's um, a known known. Like we know that video will come out. There's obviously known unknowns, um, you know, dinosaurs coming back. You know, they're trying to bring back the woolly mammoth in Russia. Like that could obviously have a huge impact, but I'm kidding. Uh, But that's the known known is this video draft. Can I chime in on from Redland here? Um, (laughs) This is, so I live in an 85% Republican neighborhood, deep, deep red um, America, and people are divided. You know, this is the thing that you don't get from 
watching Fox and all of the stories about anti-CRT this and all of the anger at the school boards and the anti-vaxxing like the Greg Abbott, people are divided. People, a lot of people don't like stuff like what Greg Abbott is doing. They don't like the anti-vaxxing. They don't like the how radical the base is becoming. But the people who don't like it are mainly being quiet. They're they're pulling back. They're withdrawing. And I think one of the one of the aspects, and this goes to Jonah's column this week, is what do they do? What do they do? It is just a myth that all of Red America is monolithically united here. There is a lot of deep discomfort with what politics has become and what the base has become, even in your own communities. Um, you have, and so the problem is one one side of this is disproportionately heard, in part because they they make it costly for you to disagree with them, and so people don't need that in their lives. They don't need to, you know, have that kind of problem. So they just they just pull back. I, I want to add one point to that because I was just ranting about this this morning on Twitter actually because I watched a segment on Morning Joe, the ten thousandth such segment where. Joe Scarborough goes on a rant about something and then he goes around the table interviewing people who violently agree with him and say, you're right, Joe, here's another reason why you're right. And you get the same dynamic across cable news to watch. I mean, this has been a problem for five years with, with, with Fox is that you would think watching Fox that every single conservative and Republican in America had no problem with Donald Trump. And you would think watching MSNBC that every single liberal Democrat type person in America hated Donald Trump, hated all Republicans, all agreed on whether it's defund the police or whatever. And this is a huge problem in the culture because the, the institutions that are supposed to signal to Americans, both the, you know, like Fox is supposed to signal to Republicans what Republicans think and also signal to Democrats about what Republicans think. And vice versa with the, these other networks. And so when you have monolithic agreement on everything, among everybody who has an R or a D associated with them, you give the impression that there is no space between Elon Omar and every other Democrat. You give the impression that everybody agrees with Charlie Kirk or Madison Cawthorn about everything. And, um, and that stifles dissent. The most interesting arguments in America right now are intra-coalitional, the, between the wokes or the Marxists, whatever, and the liberals, between, um, between progressives and moderates, between uh, fusionist conservatives or traditional conservatives and, and nationalist types. And you get no representation of those serious disagreements, for the most part, on the mainstream uh, conveyors of 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 politics. Instead, it's the only debate you get is, is really dumb, hyper-partisan stuff where a bunch of conservatives dunk on a liberal or a bunch of liberals dunk on a conservative. And it reinforces tribal loyalty and bubble thinking because they must think no one else on my team is, feels bad about this. So I must be weird. So I better stay quiet. It's a huge problem. And politicians react to that. I mean, that is why Chuck Grassley is there. That is why you have Donald Trump at 91% approval. I guess I'm just, just to wrap this up. Uh, I'm, I'm more alarmed today than I was on January 7th by a, a good measure because 
as it's become abundantly clear that Donald Trump and his top advisors had a plan that they executed in an attempt to steal an election, you are seeing Republicans who know better move back to Donald Trump and it, it tacitly endorsing what they're seeing. It's, it's very worrisome. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, but related to this conversation is Jonah's topic, uh, which is Biden's slumping approval numbers um, and I think there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had around this. So let's squeeze them all into 15 minutes. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll be very brief in the setup. Things not going well for Joe Biden. Uh, he's cratering with independents, moderates. Um, I personally think, you know, there was this Quinnipiac poll about last week. Um, but there are lots of polls out. CBS has a new poll out. He's doing bad with independents. A lot of people talk about how it's the pandemic response. If people agree with that, you can, we can get into that. But I think the, one of the most telling things in that Quinnipiac poll was uh, disapproval about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, only in this regard. Like, remember with Obamacare, there was a, you know, when it, when it polled badly, the left would say that's because it doesn't go, a lot of liberals think it doesn't go far enough. Um, and uh, so you got it from both sides. His polling on the border is very bad, but there are liberals who probably think he's being too cruel at the border. There is no like left wing criticism of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? There's no like, oh, he's getting it from both sides because he didn't do it badly enough. <laughs> and um, and so my point is, is that like that, I think, is a really good indication that a lot of people just think he's incompetent. That or they think, you know, and they also it turns out that a lot of people don't like to lose wars and that Biden misread the polling on this because a lot of people said, yeah, I want to get out of Afghanistan when they when they thought in their head that would be cheap and easy and it wouldn't look like a loss. Not, oh, we'll be humiliated and the Taliban will get back in charge and Al Qaeda will run rampant again. And I think that's sort of emblematic of his broader problems. He just seems to be not up to the job and um, it's creating a headwind for Democrats in places like Virginia. So um, I'll go to Sarah first. Um, uh, how bad is the problem for Biden generally? Is there plenty of time? Is, is, it's a lifetime between now and the election, um, of course, is the thing all pundits have to say. Um, 
And how much of a bellwether is Virginia? Does it really matter that much? Or does it, or does it, does it local, because so much Washington media lives in Virginia, does it get more attention than it deserves? It's like weather hitting New York. All of a sudden it's raining in New York and the whole country needs to know about it. Uh, if there's anything <laughs> political happening in Virginia, uh, we all must pay a lot of attention. Uh, let me just run through some numbers here. So Hillary Clinton lost independence by four points in 2016. Joe Biden won them by 13 points in 2020. So huge swing to the Democrats in the independent vote um, in four years. By June and July, Joe Biden has lost altitude with independence, but he's still up three points. So he's gone down roughly 10 points since Election Day. But then Afghanistan happens. Just August in general happens. COVID, uh, you know, September. Now he is underwater 16 points with independence. So that's a 19-point swing from this summer. Um, and of course, a near 30-point swing from his election nay a year ago. Uh, so, I mean, that's just an enormous change. Now, let me give you the flip side of this, which is if you go to Donald Trump's numbers at this time, uh, when he is elected, his approval rating is roughly even. It's 47, 45 when he takes office, 47 disapproved. So he's a little bit underwater. Uh, by this time, he is at 60% disapprove, 35% approve. And of course, in 2022, uh, Republicans do very, very, very well, unexpectedly well. Like expectations wise, they like blew it out of the water, but even not just expectations wise, um, the Senate was, I think, a big win. Um, so I think what's different here is the swing, right? It's, it's the shift in Biden's numbers. It's that there's a moment in which we see it happening um, it's more tied to like something reality based, whereas Donald Trump basically gets underwater in those high 50s and uh, low 60s, like right away. Um, it doesn't really change then. So I, I do think that's a problem. But here's my question to David French. I'm going to steal your mic, Jonah, because this is a debate I was having about the Virginia governor's election. If you are and by the way, Jonah, just your point on the debates we should be having publicly, the intra-movement debates, oh, I just want to take a bath in that point and luxuriate <laughs> in it. It is so true, and I'm going to be thinking about it the rest of the day and be frustrated. Uh, so, David, this is kind of related to that, actually. If you are a moderate of either you know center-left, center-right, I'm not sure it matters, and you think your vote matters, you have a strategic voting mind, do you vote for the Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, to deflate the Trumpist Republicans and make them think better about the direction they're headed? Or do you vote for the Republican, Glenn Youngkin, in the hopes of sending an immediate message to the Biden administration that they need to drop this, you know, progressive caucus nonsense, moderate immediately so that they have some chance of beating Donald Trump in 2024? How would you strategically vote? I'm very curious. Okay, so number one, I don't vote strategically like that. <laughs> uh, and I just, I, I think that's part of the problem because what you end up doing is you end up minimizing the significance of the individual on the ballot who could be horrible <laughs> for the significance of the message that you send by putting the R or the D by the person that you're sending to 
um, Washington or to the state house or whatever. So I have a simple formula for voting. It is, does the, pers- does the person have the character that is commensurate with the office that they seek? And do they support the policies broadly that I support? You have to pass both. If you don't pass either one or one or the other, you just don't get my vote. And I think the message voting, one of the reasons why we have some of the worst people in Congress right now is message voting. Scott Desjardins, right the next, the next uh, district over from me, we, I say we, because I was there at the time, Uh, I didn't do it, but my neighbors tossed out a pro-life, pro-Second Amendment Democrat in favor of a guy who'd had affairs, uh, had paid for abortions, had plied patients with drugs, had, uh, according to court documents, threatened his ex-wife with guns to send a message to Washington. And so that's, I just reject that. I say, look at your candidates. Do they have the character that matches the needs of the office? Do they have the policies that match your values? And if that, that's, that's your analysis right there, Sarah, full stop. This is why I keep writing in Mitch Daniels. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's worse than David's Avengers takes. That is so unsatisfying. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. All right. So I didn't know that Sarah was going to give me back the mic. Sorry. Um, (laughs) So, so Steve, um, there's this raging debate among um, Democrats and uh, data crunching types uh, that was sort of broke out into the open with a big piece by Ezra Klein about this guy, David Shore, that basically makes the case that I have been making, to be quite honest, for a very long time now, which is that the Democratic leadership is enthralled to, um, is very online, very in a bubble, um, thinks that they are um, messaging to real Americans when they talk about things like birthing persons and um, Latinx and all of this kind of stuff. When in fact, what they're doing is they're messaging to very woke, very online, professional, uh, sort of master's degree radical types. And that, in fact, it turns off normal voters, normal Democratic voters. And um, I, I had never heard this term until fairly recently, but it's called popularism, not populism, popularism. Um, how much do that... What do you think of the argument? And also, how much of that do you think factors into Joe Biden's woes? Because 1990s political, you know, where I grew up in the 1990s politically, the whole point of Democrats winning was signaling was the sort of Clintonian triangulation stuff, which even Barack Obama did, was signaling to people that you're not part of the hard left. That's how Biden ran. It ain't how he governed. Um, but what, where do you come down on this? Yeah, so I think you were right. Um, I, th- I think this is a, a big problem for Democrats, and I think it's a big problem for the country, in part because of what we just talked about, in part because of we're seeing where the Republican Party is going right now, and Democrats, by embracing popularism and, and the, the sort of on the arguments of the most online left, uh, are further marginalizing them and likely to cede additional power. I mean, I think if you look at 2022, long way to the election, as we said before. I should just clarify really quickly for this term thing. Um, I may have misused the word popularism, but to be clear, 
Popularism, what David Shore believes, he believes popularism says don't talk about defund the police. Popularism says say popular um, things, say like popular just- things. <laughs> and even if you believe in unpopular things, don't talk about them. Because when you talk about them, even if you make great arguments for, say, your position on immigration, merely talking about immigration pushes voters to Republicans. So just don't talk about it. You can worry about the policy later, but like talk about things that people want to hear about. That's the argument. Yeah. And I think I think we're seeing and look, I think we're seeing from from the Biden White House. If you if you um, go back to the discussion that we had about the, the DOJ memo um, to the points that you were making, raising something that they think is likely to be popular with their base and energizes Republicans. Um, you know, if you look at the the. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, there's sort of a parlor game in Washington, and and we have made far, far too many references to Twitter on this podcast, Uh, but I'm going to make another one. But they're all disparaging, disparaging, so that's... that's I mean, mostly, (laughs) yeah, mostly. I I like people who are not on on Twitter, Um, but there's this parlor game in Washington where people are paying very careful attention to what Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, likes on Twitter. And he spends a lot of time and attention. I think at this point, he knows that he's signaling things with his likes, and he signals things to the online left to say, in effect, hey, we're with you. We're with you. But it extends to governance. Uh, I've talked to, I think I've mentioned this here before, I've talked to... um, leading Republican elected officials who've been in the room with Joe Biden discussing things like the COVID relief package, the infrastructure package. And what they will tell you is they sit across the table from Joe Biden and he makes, he, he seems to engage them deeply. He seems eager for bipartisan compromise. He talks like, you know, Joe Biden of the Senate 25 years ago, let me be a deal maker. Let's figure out how you get a little, we get a little, and we can come to a compromise. And then when they leave, the White House staff, very interested in sort of online leftism, scuttles it all. And you get additional governance from the White House to the left. The, the big point I would make um, brings together our, our last discussion and, and this one. You look at the 2022 elections, and it's not a foregone conclusion, but highly likely that Republicans do very well in 2022 historically suggests that they that they would do well you look at biden's approval suggests that they would do well you look at worries about the economy you look at the issue set broadly and republicans are in a good position to do well they are doing that by embracing by re-embracing donald trump and trumpism and kevin mccarthy's been very clear about this the national republican congressional committee is sending out uh, fundraising emails saying if you're if you're saying we we need to draft Donald Trump saying, if you're not, if you don't respond to this, you're not uh, a good Trumpy Republican. There's been this, uh, this, this institutional re-embrace of Donald Trump. I think if Republicans do well in 2022, it makes it very easy for Donald Trump and the people who have embraced him to say they did well in 2022 because they embraced Donald Trump to, to create this causal argument that I think will be appealing to a lot of elected Republicans and therefore drive them deeper into the arms of Donald Trump and to a further embrace of Trumpism. David Shore's argument about where Democrats are, it's, it's worth going to, to Ezra Klein and, 
and reading the article, if you look at his modeling, suggests that Democrats are in trouble, not just in 2022, but really for the next decade. Yeah. So let me just read one part of this uh, David Shore article. And obviously, yes, we will put it in the show notes that I found really interesting and nuanced, actually. He's talking about the defund the police slogan. And he's saying, we raise the salience of an ideologically charged issue that millions of non-white voters disagreed with us on. And then as a result, these conservative Hispanic voters who've been voting for us despite their ideological inclinations started voting more like conservative whites. And the reason that I think that's so interesting is it's not, again, um, it's a, it's the rational voter theory being stupid per usual. It's always pretty stupid. Um, that these people were voting for Democrats, even though they disagreed with them on any host of things, as we all vote for a political party that we probably, hopefully don't agree with on every single point. But if you raise and make salient the very issues on which they don't agree with you, instead of the ones that they do agree with you, th- you are doing something very stupid. Um, and as he, as Shore put it, if you look inside the Democratic Party, there are three times more moderate or conservative non-white people than very liberal white people. But very liberal white people are infinitely more represented. That's morally bad, but it also means they, meaning the moderate or conservative non-white people, will leave. Uh, now, there's plenty of pushback against Shore, certainly on enthusiasm, turnout modeling. Like there are lots of people in the Democratic Party that don't agree with Shore, but just on that popularism point, if you know that large chunks of your voters don't agree with you on certain topics, why would you keep talking about those topics? You can still believe those things. They don't mind that you vote on those things, you know, uh, propose laws on those things once you're in office. They just don't need to be reminded of it every day or else they start second guessing who they're voting for. So a really interesting piece, David Shore sort of seen as a unpopular prophet after he was canceled uh, on for a tweet that he had. I mean, the whole story, it's too perfect, right? He is the perfect poster child for this. So I know I'm a broken record about the Latinx thing because I think it's just so emblematic of everything that's stupid about the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, most Latinos don't even know what Latinx is, never mind use it, right? And those who know what it is don't like it. And there's only like three or four percent that actually use it actively. And yet Democratic politicians constantly use it and they think that they're signaling to a large constituency favorably when in fact what they're doing is they're signaling to a large constituency saying, we're not like you, right? We speak this weird shibboleth drenched elite talk that makes you sound like a pointy, makes you sound like a pointy headed jerk. Well, and don't forget the reason for it is because they have genderized words. So you're also insulting their language. Right. And it's like, (laughs) and as Steve can attest, having lived for a year in Spain, de-genderizing Spanish is just not going to happen. (laughs) Um, And so, but anyway, the reason I bring it up is that there's this, you know, so it sends a signal to a lot of Hispanics, but also a lot of whites that these people talk funny. They've got an agenda that's not my agenda. Um, and it doesn't win you Latinos. It probably loses you more Latinos than it wins you. But the other, the MSNBC apparently has some Hispanic-focused TV show that's on weekends, which is where they put all the shows that they don't care about the low ratings. Um, and there are these commercials that they're running for it. And I think they're fantastic because there's this, there's this Latino woman 
you know, I, I don't know anything about her, but she's like promoing a show and she's talking about getting more Latinos in prominent places and culture and blah, 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 blah. And she says, so I'm speaking here to Latinos, Latinas, Latinx. And she's now, what she's done there is basically turn Latinx into its own sub ethnicity, right? It's no longer doing what it's supposed to do, which is replace Latino and Latina. Now it is for that tiny, tiny subset of super woke blue bubble liver dwellers. It's signaling, I'm speaking your language too, but also the language of normal Latinos and Latinas out there. And I think it gets, it just sort of gets to the heart of the dilemma for the Democrats is they got to speak to a very elite audience, very highly educated audience. And they're baffled that when they do that, they turn off less educated or just plain normal voters. And that's their problem. And they got to figure out how to get out of it. And David Short, whose models have been incredibly predictive in the past, in 2022, actually, says that the Democrats have a 50-50 shot of holding the Senate. I would put that a little higher. I think they will hold the Senate. Uh, but in 2024, his model predicts a seven-seat loss for Democrats, which is just mind-blowing. Um, so... That is where we will end today. Thank you all so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast if you're enjoying listening to it. You can get the word out also by rating us, leaving a little note. We appreciate it. And we will see you again next week. Bye.